I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder. The good and the not so good. The successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful, but always beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. Here we go, everyone. Another really, really powerful episode. My guest for today is Becky Henry. And Becky is an amazing human being. She has created a coaching service to support supports. So not the typical coaching services to help the client, but this is for the loved ones. And by the way, so, so needed. I I can't believe that Becky is one of the only people I know or the only person I know who provides this service. We talk about things today that are important for both supports and people suffering from an eating disorder to hear. We talk about the importance of helping the family as a whole. We cannot do this in a vacuum. So it is imperative that the family is involved. It's also really important that the family has guidance through this journey because it's not easy, it's not short, and no one told them, the supports, how to get through this. So it's so interesting. Becky talks about things like, you know, that joy and sorrow can exist side by side. And that's what supports feel. Giving yourself permission to have joy, even when sorrow and pain are still there. We also talk about what happens when professionals in the field are not believing the symptoms that parents are telling doctors. And that's exactly what happened in Becky's situation. Another thing that we don't talk about a lot on this episode, but it is a really important topic, is the finances. Becky has somebody that works with her to give people financial therapy to understand how do you save money in order to to have your child go to treatment? Or when I say child, loved one, spouse, partner, friend, whoever is the financially responsible person, how do you do this so not all your money is depleted? This is a really important episode and I'm so glad that we've done it and I hope you all enjoy it as much as I do. Okay, here we go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. 
I am so honored to have our guest on today. First, I'd like to introduce you all. Becky Henry, welcome to the show. Thank you, Karen. I have such a place for you in my heart because of the work that you do. And, you know, you and I had a conversation the other day on the phone and I shared a story with you, which I I have shared before on this podcast, but I'm going to share with listeners again about an experience my parents had trying to find support when I was diagnosed with anorexia. We'll talk about that later. Becky, can you let the listeners know the amazing, amazing work that you do? Thank you, Karen. That's very kind. Um, So my whole mission is to help support the family caregivers of those with eating disorders and change the way parents are supported when caregiving. So I really hope to change the standard of care so that it includes family caregiver support because I see the difference through my group coaching calls, my one-on-one coaching, my hug kits to give parents and caregivers a hug, and now the new Recovery Roadmap Specialist webinar series that I created with Ibbitt's Newhall and Wendy Wright. All of those things combine to help the family caregivers have the support that I didn't have as a family caregiver. So I think I'm going to start with the story that I, as I said to you the other night on the phone, and then I want to go into you explaining what all of those things are, because family members, and it could be your biological parents, this could be for your, your chosen, you know, parents that you chose to be your parents, friends, supports, this is for anybody that needs support. And I just think it is, they're the forgotten ones. Yeah, so it can be partners, friends, college roommates, spouses, siblings, anyone who cares about someone with an eating disorder are the family caregivers. And so often I slip and just call them parents. And please know when I say that, I mean anyone who cares about someone with an eating disorder. Fantastic. So, and and listeners, you've heard me tell this story before, but I'm going to tell it again because this is why the work you do, Becky, just warms my heart. When I was diagnosed 30 years ago, and there was really nothing out there for, first of all, for people who were struggling, and second, especially for parents, my parents had no idea what to do. They basically said to my parents, they, meaning doctors, take her out of college, take her home, take care of her. My parents were like, what what does that mean? One of them suggested that my parents go to a support group. My parents, who I'm privileged to say love me to, to death, love me, love me, love me, I'm very lucky, would never wanna harm me. My parents went to this support group and it was with a really inexperienced therapist. And my mom, in all of her fear, said, sometimes I just want to take Karen by the shoulders and shake her to get her to eat something. A woman in the group looked at my parents and said, shame on you. How dare you want to hurt your child? Becky, You and I both know that is not what my mother meant literally. I have also said as a clinical director, I have often wanted to shake clients. This is a really hard thing to watch someone you care about go through. And the reason why I say it was with an inexperienced clinician is because the therapist never said a word, let that statement fall to the middle of that group room floor, and my parents 
never went back to that support group again because they felt shamed. They were embarrassed. They felt judged. That story breaks my heart. Tell me what you went through when your daughter was struggling with an eating disorder because it sounds like you had similar experiences and had to start your own organization to help. So can you talk a little bit about what it was like, what you went through? Yeah. And I'll, thanks, Karen. And it's just, it, I have a visceral response just listening to you say that. I can just feel it in my gut and I kind of feel sick to my stomach. Um, it, it brings it back. And it, it, and it was over 20 years ago that I lived this and um, with my, my oldest child. And I, um, I was stunned because I grew up in Minnesota where we have lots of um, substance abuse treatment centers always have because Hazelden is there. And the whole culture of that is the family is not to blame and the family is included in the recovery for the loved one. And that's what I grew up knowing. So then when I suddenly became a parent of a child with an eating disorder, I was like, wait, why isn't this like that? It didn't make sense to me. And um, both Kitty Weston, whom many of you may know the name of, she she really um, helped found the Eating Disorders Coalition in Washington, D.C. and helped change laws federally and in Minnesota. But she and I both told the same treatment center in Minnesota um, that they did harm when they gave us both the message two years apart um, that we had done enough damage and we should just get out of the way. And they were stunned when we each said that to them. And they're like, that's not our philosophy. And we said, that's the message we got as parents from you. And it was so harmful. And again, I was stunned. Why is this not like the substance abuse model? We should be given all these tools and support and help to learn how, what to say, what not to say, what to do, what not to do. We were just basically just told stuff about eating disorders, which I could have read in a book or on the internet, you know, but I needed to know the skills to help my child so that I wasn't losing my mind and I could be more effective. But instead I was this frazzled, scared, um, nervous, anxious person who was just not effective at all. Yeah. Let's say worst case scenario, that was the truth because you and I have also talked about the family always feels like they're blamed, especially the mother. And that is not the case. I will also, as an, as a little add on, there are times when the family has been abusive, neglectful, and that's a different story, but there's never one thing that causes an eating disorder. But with what you were saying, they said to you, you've done enough harm back off. Let's say that were the case, even more reason to bring the family system in to help the family as a whole, as opposed to turning a blind eye to the family. That doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, me either, Karen. And it, it's stunning to me when I work with families to hear similar things still happening. And this is 2020, the end of 2020. And it's like, really, really, we're still telling parents you know, we'll take care of your kid. You just go do your own thing. It's like, you know, when we're in a vacuum of information, guess what our brains do? We make up stuff, scary, scary stuff. 
And so we need to be told, here's what's happening on a fairly regular basis so that our brain can't go, oh my goodness, I haven't heard anything for two days. I wonder if my kid is A, still alive, B, eating, C, still going to their their therapist or dietitian or psychiatrist. And are they self-harming? It's like the brain just goes all kinds of scary places because we've had lots of evidence showing us that those are real possibilities. Can you share a little bit about some of the inquiries that you get from family members? Like, what are some of the themes? You know, I get themes such as people calling and saying, I'm struggling with an eating disorder. Can you help me? Like, what do you get? Do you get parents saying, I'm petrified or I don't know what to do? Or is it my fault? Like, what are the things that you notice you're getting? What I'm getting from families are all of the things you just mentioned. They're petrified. They don't know how to help their child. And um, they, they want to know what to do or how to get their child or loved one treatment. Um, but they're not always saying it in those exact words. Parents come to me usually saying, um, can you help me help my child? Can you help me get my child into treatment? And Or my child's in treatment and I don't know how to help them, or I'm supposed to be doing refeeding and I, I don't even know how. I also imagine, and I think this is okay too, you get parents that say, I'm angry. You know, it's usually when they're working with me one-on-one or if they've been in my group support for a long time and they know it's a really safe space, um, but they'll say, I feel horrible saying this, but I'm angry. And I'm like, there's no reason to feel horrible. Of course you feel angry. This monster is stealing your loved one from you. And isn't it so wonderful to give space to somebody who is having this inner dialogue of judgment? Like, I can't say I'm angry. They're my child. I can't say I'm angry. They're my sibling. I can't. And then saying, oh, you're allowed to have any feeling that you want. You can't even help it until you start talking about it. And I love that you create a safe space for that. Thank you. I, I love creating a safe space for all of those emotions. And, and one of my favorite testimonials from a client, and I have full permission to use this, is they said to me, you sat with me on the scariest, darkest places And you allowed me to feel all the pain and all the sadness. And you didn't try to rescue me from it. You were brave enough to go to that scary place and sit with me in it until I was ready to come out of it. And it was just like, ah, what I would have given to have had that kind of accompaniment. Anything. Can you share a little bit about what it was that you did experience? And what it is you've created for support, like going in a little bit deeper, because I'm imagining there are parents or supports listening to this right now thinking, I wonder if Becky got angry. I wonder if, you know, what is it that you were experiencing besides being told back off? How did that leave you? And tell us a little bit about what you created as a result. Yeah. um, So what I experienced was, again, not having any support. I mean, I found my own therapist who she taught me some DBT skills, which I was like, wait, this is one of the most amazing things I've ever learned in my life. Why are we not teaching this starting in preschool to every child in the world? Um, 
you know, and just building and building on it throughout the years. Like, come on. <laughs> Anyhow, I fell in love with DBT. And then I also was going through my coaching training at the time that my child got sick. And I say to this day, and when I'm speaking in front of audiences, I'm like, listen, I was really tempted to go rock in a corner, but coaching showed me I could rock my life. And I learned from coaching that joy, and I'm holding up my hands now that listeners can't hear this, but I have my hands side by side. And it's like, I learned that the joy, one hand and sorrow, the other hand, can exist side by side. One does not have to overshadow the other. They can both exist. So we can be scared out of our minds. I was terrified my child was going to die. I was frustrated beyond words. The pediatrician would not listen to me, didn't believe me. And didn't know about eating disorders and didn't know the things to look for. Had some preconceived notions about what a person with an eating disorder would present as. And didn't know some real basic things. And I, I just listened to your podcast with Reagan Chastain this morning and loved it. Oh my goodness. And so many things resonated about healthcare professionals not knowing some of the basics. That was a real hindrance to getting my loved one care. And it took two years of me just pounding and ranting and raving and losing my mind and being that crazy mama uh, to finally get some help. And like literally going to the pediatrician and saying, here's your diagnosis on a silver platter, honey, let's get a referral, you know? And I mean, I, it took me 10 years to release some of that anger. All the, all, I guess I would say the majority of that anger. Um, and I've actually spoken at that clinic to their staff now about educating their staff, which was a wonderful full circle thing. But um, it was it was the coaching that combined with the DBT from the therapist that saved me. I realized I had a choice. I was so sad and so scared and so isolated. I had nobody to talk to about this who understood. When I would talk to family and friends, they would say things like my book title. Can't you just tell her to stop that? And I was just like, really? Really? I'm going to go down to the bar and tell the alcoholics to set down their beers, and that's going to work really well, too. But anyhow, um, I, I was so frustrated. And the coaching showed me that I had a choice that, of what I focused on. I could focus on the sorrow or I could focus on the joy and I could give my permission, self permission to have joy even while the sorrow and pain and awfulness was happening. I want you to talk about some of the techniques that you use and teach, but I also want to comment on something. You said it took two years to get your daughter diagnosed. Do you realize she lost two years of starting her recovery process? And we know the longer somebody is in an eating disorder, the longer the recovery process takes and the less likelihood that the recovery is going to come anytime soon. Meaning I was very lucky. I was one of these cases, shall we say, that I went from zero to 60 overnight. And so my behaviors of my eating disorder, not the emotional part, but the behaviors were, were really quick. And I got diagnosed right away. People have said to me time and time again, you are so lucky because again, 
the shorter that you have it, the the quicker the recovery process is, the higher the probability of full recovery. Your daughter lost two years. Yes. And it did harm. Harm was done. Um, That also took me a lot of years to process the anger over. Just imagine if you had a child who you knew had cancer or a broken leg for heaven's sakes. And you went to the doctor and said, this is what this is. We need to handle this. And they said, no, that leg that's dangling there isn't broken. And you're like, yeah, actually it is. And they said, no. And for two years, that kid walked around with that broken leg or walked around with that cancer and the cancer grew. And that's what it was like. And it was just unfathomably, unfathomably wrong. What kind of things did they say to you? Did they, and and by the way, I'm wondering if they sort of started looking at you, like maybe there was something wrong with mom because mom keeps bringing this child. Well, I don't know. I'm not sure how old she was, but to the doctors and like, so what kind of things were they saying for explanations? Um. And I'm really careful to tell my story and not my daughter's story. So I'm, or you know, what I was told by the pediatrician, and this is a direct quote, was the word "nope," n o p e, nope. And I said, "What do you mean, nope?" And the pediatrician looked at me as she was turning on her heel and walking away from me. Nope, she doesn't have that. And I said which and she just said neither and I'm not going to go into what the diagnoses were that I suspected but I I was just stunned and I thought how what why is she just walking away from me and looking back and knowing what I know now I would have said excuse me we need to finish this conversation please don't walk away from me I need to know what you're talking about and and luckily now I know so much about eating disorders but most medical professionals aren't trained on eating disorders, much less a parent. You know, here I was this young mom, like, what did I know? What I tell parents now is if a pediatrician or any other medical professional does that, you say, excuse me, you're not walking away from me until we discuss this further. And um, one thing you may not know, medical professional, is that a part of these illnesses is that people do not except that they have the illness. And there's a big word that maybe many people don't know, a nosognosia, that a person doesn't accept they have the illness. And they're probably not going to be honest with you, healthcare professional. And you need to know that piece. And one thing, if every single doctor in the world was trained to know that one thing about eating disorders, it would be a game changer for millions of people. So the word nope sticks out in my mind. Actually, that would be a good book title, wouldn't it? I was just going to say that. And, and, and that's really heartbreaking that that would be the title of the book, but that's, wow. Nope. And then, you know, I consulted with three different psychologists over those two years, all of whom said to me, no, that's not going on. And I was like, what? And so, you know, what you and I both know, Karen, and uh, is that again that piece of the nosognosia, the um, the inability to accept what's going on, and the unbelievable acting skills of people with eating disorders, right? 
some of the best actors in the world, Emmy worthy, you know? Yeah. Oh, I was, I was. And another thing that you and I talked about is that when I I can't remember how we got into this conversation the other night, but we're saying something that, oh, I know we were talking about how angry clients get when they say to their parents, I can't believe you don't trust me. And I say to them, I say to the client, you need to earn that back. They are not supposed to trust you at this point because part of the eating disorder, and I always use my own experience, I am not a person who lies. I lied through my teeth to protect my eating disorder and parents are terrified. And and I'm doing like you as well. I'm using parents as the term for all. Terrified to trust. Oh, maybe they're not engaging in behaviors anymore because if they get fooled and find out that you are, that is devastating to them. They are terrified for your life. So no, no, they're not just going to trust you when you say you're not doing behaviors when you were doing them for two years in the house. It doesn't work that way. Right. I have parents ask me about that trust piece all the time. They're like, what am I supposed to do? Because I really don't trust my child because I'm finding bags of vomit under their bed, or I'm, I'm hearing them throwing up in the shower, or I'm finding, you know, snack bags in the in the outside the window in the grass you know and they're like but my kid is mad that I won't trust them and it's exactly what you said and I tell them you know you can let your child know or your loved one know I will trust you again one day and I look forward to you earning that back yeah yeah I want you to go into some of the more details of what you do because when when I looked at your website I thought, oh my God, Becky just just got it. Tell tell the listeners about some of the work that you do that that people can take some takeaways from this from this episode. Yeah, thanks, Karen. Um, I really have to credit the coaching model that I was trained in. I I fell in love. I mean, not only did it save my life, I fell in love with this coaching model. I was like, this is one of the most brilliant things I've ever seen in my life. It's, you know, occasionally I'm consulting with someone and they might say, oh, I live in New York and who's a therapist? And I'll say, Karen Lewis is amazing. You know, that's the consulting hat. But most of the time it's my coaching hat where I get to help peel away the layers of the onion and I'll stop using my hands again. But... (laughs) peel away the layers of the onion and help them find the answers within them because most people do have the answers within them. And then we ask a lot of powerful questions and create this this safety so that they can express what's going on and know that I get it. Um, They trust me because I've walked this horrible dark journey and I get it. And there is nothing they can say that's gonna freak me out. I've heard it all. And so, and I'm very fortunate to have had a beautiful website designer up in Canada who created that gorgeous website for me. I recommend her name to people all the time, but um, Amanda DeVries is her name. She's in Canada. But um, I, I looked at what did I want? I wanted someone to see me, to listen, to validate me, to acknowledge me. And to sit with me in the pain and the sadness. I wanted someone to help me find the answers 
and create solutions and, and really create that accompaniment and accountability. Like, okay, Becky, you say you're going to do this breathing exercise this week and this meditation exercise this week, and you're going to go have a date with your husband and not talk about your fears about the eating disorder. And then the next week they're going to check in with me. And that was just like mind blowing, like, oh, wow. So I'm like, this is what I need to create for these families. And it's so funny because when I first started, um, I really wanted to bring joy to parents. That was my whole thing. I'm like, I'm going to bring, help them have joy again. And I tried to sell that and nobody wanted to buy it. And so then I figured out, oh, I need to meet them where they're at and talk about taking away their fear and taking away the eating disorder from their kiddo. And so that's where I start with people. And then I help bring them to having joy again. And by the time they're ready to grab that balloon, and one one mom even made a t-shirt of her journey of like being in the deep end of the ocean. And I like threw her a life ring and got her to the beach. And then she was like face down on the beach in the sand. And then she was able to like sort of be a little bit elevated and then sitting up and then standing and then imagining grabbing this balloon of joy and then eventually holding the balloon. Um, I loved it when she drew that because nobody knows in the beginning that joy is possible. And so I hold that for them until they can believe in the possibility of it for themselves. So doing that, it looks like these um, group coaching calls once a week that I have on Wednesdays, uh, one-on-one coaching that I do with families for an hour once a week, um, my hug kits to give people a hug. And it's got like these 10 topics that I've had with every one of my coaching clients, you know, distress, uh, boundaries, communication, um, talking about treatment, uh, um, emotions, support, all of those topics are in the hug kits. And then the recovery roadmaps webinar series that we created this summer that treatment centers can purchase for their families or people can purchase individually. All of those things help the families cope with how do I communicate with my person whose brain is malnourished and they're hearing every fifth word? You know, how do I figure out how to manage my own fear and distress so that I can be regulated for my child or loved one who's so dysregulated? You know, those are the nitty gritty nuts and bolts. And a lot of it's about self-care. And it's really funny, Karen, because when I talk about self-care with my clients early on in the coaching relationship, they're just, they get kind of sick of hearing me say it. And they're kind of like, why do you, you know, why do you keep talking about that? It's my kid who's so sick, my loved one, my partner who's so sick, I need to help them. And I'm like, the one thing that you can do that's going to make the biggest difference is take care of you. Get that oxygen mask firmly in place. Get yourself calmer. Then you'll be able to be more compassionate and confident in your caregiving, and that's going to help your loved one get better. And it's it's really interesting for me to watch the progression, and every one of them goes through it to some degree or another, where it's like they're resisting the self-care, resisting, 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 finally embracing it, and then seeing the difference it makes. It's it's just so cool, and it just it's fun for me. It's really fun to see them go, oh my goodness. You're right. When I take care of me, my loved one is getting better. My loved one notices. I also want to say it helps to model for the person who's struggling that 
authentic, genuine self-care, not eating disorder behaviors for avoidance, but real self-care is an important thing that aspect of life. Everybody needs to do it. And by the way, an eating disorder could not be farther on the spectrum from self-care. It is, it is, there is nothing. People, people think it's what they use for self-soothing, all these things. Nope. Oh, there's that word again. Nope. It's not, that is not self-care. I love it, say what it is again. I can't remember. Was it called roadmaps, recovery roadmaps on your that you just implemented? Because that is something that's really critical for, especially for first time family members. How to choose a treatment center, how to deal with the finances of treatment. Can you speak a little bit to that? Because I've had parents that call me and they're like, uh, where do I begin? I, I went on a website and I saw, you know, 50 different recovery programs or, or eating disorder programs. Where do I begin? What do I do if they don't take insurance? Like, go ahead. Things yeah, like that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of funny because if it's Newhall and I have known each other for years from going to eating disorder conferences and whatnot and just adored each other and, and we help the families in different ways. I help them with the oxygen mask and self-care piece in you know that's sort of a nutshell version of it and Ibitz is a, a treatment placement consultant and she really helps families navigate the whole treatment process and we were she said to me one day you know we should really do something together and combine all of our knowledge and I was like yeah that's a great idea and then lovely Megan Iliopoulos at the Gaudiani Clinic said um, when we were looking for a therapist to join us, she said, oh, Wendy Wright in Denver is amazing. You need to connect with her. So the three of us started this um, in July of this year and realized that the families need that help with that, you know, going from panic to plan in the beginning, like, what are we going to do? How's this going to look? And we talked about it from our three perspectives. And then during residential, what is that like? What are the questions to ask? What are the plans to make? And Wendy, with her financial piece, talks about, you know, you need to have, take your, whatever amount of money you have and budget so that you don't spend it all on residential, that you save some of, of it for the step down and the follow-up that can take a long time, because that's such an important part, right? When they're coming out to the outpatient providers, you've got to prepare for that piece that can take a few years sometimes. And so I, I just love that we could create this from our three perspectives. And, you know, it really is vital. I would love for every parent, every family to have this right off the bat. And we had people who took the course who've been through treatment a number of times. And the family said, this was so helpful. I wish I would have had it at the beginning, but it was still helpful, even though this was our fifth time. So it really helps them to know what to ask and what, you know, what questions at every step of the way, um, how to understand what's going on, how to take care of themselves, how to not um, do for their loved one what their loved one can do for themselves, which when your loved one has an eating disorder, as a family caregiver, it seems like they can't do anything for themselves. And yet, if we rescue them all the time, we're actually cutting them off at the knees. And that's so hard. I, I often use the metaphor of a, a train coming and that for the family caregiver, it feels like you're watching your loved one standing on a train track and a train is coming 
and it's getting faster and faster and faster and closer and closer to your loved one. And you're putting out your hand and saying, please, please take my hand, get off. And they're just staring at you blankly with that mask of depression. And it's not going to help them if you get hit by the train too. So you need to step back a little bit. I'm not saying get out of the way completely. Just turn around and run for the hills. I'm saying step back so the train doesn't hit you. Get that oxygen mask on. Get the resources. Get the team of professionals to help get that loved one off those tracks. I also love that you have somebody on this team with that, that you were talking about that helps with the financials. I don't think people know how expensive treatment can ultimately end up becoming. People have no idea. I've had clients when I used to run Montanito, and this is not unique to Montanito, so I want to be very clear about that. This is with all programs where I've had devastatingly painful, tearful conversations with parents and they say, we've already taken out another mortgage on our house. I we are drained financially, Karen. I cannot keep them in treatment anymore. I, I just don't have, we don't have the finances. My other child is not even going to be able to go to college because all of the money has gone to treatment. So the fact that you have somebody helps with the finances, I, I want to highlight how huge that is. It's Ibbots and I were just thrilled when Megan suggested Wendy, right? We were like, what? This is so awesome because that is such a big piece. And there's that piece that you're addressing, which is so brutal. I hear those sad, sad stories all the time. And there's the other piece of Wendy in her therapy practice, she's a certified financial therapist, which I didn't even know was a thing. And she'll help her clients with their decision making issues around money. So because oftentimes people with eating disorders are very challenged with their decisions about finances. So there it's a twofold piece that she does, um, which is so, so cool. Um, and and then Ibbets has so many years of uh, experience and I just made her sound like she's 192, which she'll think is hysterical. <laughs> she's going to love that. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never hear the end of it. Um, <laughs> right now, if it's like, wait a minute, I, something's happening in the universe. I don't feel right all of a sudden. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was an evil laugh, wasn't it? Um, <clears throat> anyhow, um, as young as Ibbets is, she has many years of experience in the field of helping families navigate this stuff. And she knows the questions for families to ask and her lists that are included. We each have handouts that are included with the webinar series. And uh, the lists that Ibbets has made are just phenomenal. I mean, those alone, if I had had one of Ibbets's lists, I would have been ecstatic. I'm telling you. I mean, I was begging for a poster on the beige wall that I was staring at in a little square room while I was sitting there alone with my fear. And, um, oh my goodness, what I would have given for one of Ibbets' lists. But uh, those are part of the handouts that are included with the webinar series. And we um, have made them so reasonable. I mean, the, the whole series is $97 for families. That includes all three webinars and the handouts. It's not 97 for each webinar. And treatment centers um, have options to be promotional partners or sponsors, and they get it at a 20% discount. So uh, we made it super reasonable because we want every family to have this. Yeah. 
Yeah. I also want to say one more thing about the financial part. And I know this is a pretty provocative thing for me to say. I've also had to say to parents before, stop sending your money. Stop spending it. Your child or loved one or whatever is actually thriving or I'm I'm going to use a term. I don't want to use this term. Hang on. Give me a second, everyone. I need to think about this. I'll, I'll just use it as sort of as, as an example. I have had clients who continuously want to come back to the treatment center. They are um, they get overly attached with the staff, which by the way, that's not always a good thing. I love being attached to my clients. Oh my God, I love it so much. There's an over-attachment though, where clients no longer want to be in the real world and they want to keep coming back to treatment. And they are sabotaging their recovery because they want to be, or they're, they're attached to a particular treatment center. It could be any center in the country. Doesn't matter which one it is. And I say to the parents, stop. This is actually a secondary problem that we're dealing with now, which is your child is like almost addicted to this treatment center. Stop. So, the, you know, there's, there's when parents, even when parents want to spend money, sometimes I say, nope, that's not, we need to understand why does this person, if, if this person really needed help, mm, let me change the word needed. I apologize because people, even at that level, you know, people are needing help. If this were, if it were truly the eating disorder and nothing else, then your child would go to any other treatment center. But for some reason, they continuously show up at our door. Nope. They need to go somewhere else or they need to do it out in the world. I don't know if you have any thoughts to that or experiences with that. Yeah, I don't see that as much. It's occasional, um, it, but it is a boundary issue. And boundaries are a lot of what I work with the families on, a lot. The families are terrified to set boundaries. And it's fascinating because a lot of us grew up with believing that boundaries are punitive and they're not loving. And so we spend a lot of time dismantling that belief. And it's like, really, boundaries are a fair thing. For example, if there weren't speed limits posted and we went, let's say, 55, but the speed limit was 30 and then we got a ticket, we'd be like, well, this isn't fair. I didn't know it was 30. I thought it was 55 here. Right. So that's a loving act to let us know here's what the boundary is. If you go over 30 in on this street in this space, you're gonna get a ticket. But if you don't, if you're not told and you think, well, I think it's 55 here, I don't want to go 55. It's the same thing. And so it's really a loving act to say to our loved one, you know what? What I can support is paying for college once your treatment team has said you are well enough to be able to do it. Period. How do you help parents when their child refuses to go to treatment? Or, yeah, I'm going to use that word, because what do you say to the parent? Oh, my goodness. Um, There are a lot of different things. (laughs) Um, You know, again, self-care, boundaries, working on your communication, validating, and being super clear with your whoever you are 
um, either co-parenting with or helping this loved one along with being on the same page as that person and saying, here's what we can support and being super firm on that. And, and when, and knowing what the consequence is, you know, we can support um, continuing to pay for your car and your cell phone and this and that and the other thing um, once you're in treatment again, and then being willing to follow through on that. And that's where the rubber hits the road. And that's a scary place. And people are terrified because the eating disorder often uses scary things like threats of suicide. Well, if you take away my this, that, or the other thing, I'm going to kill myself. And so then the family member says, well, I can't take it away because they'll kill themselves. And then we have to talk about, well, how that is slowly killing them if they aren't getting treatment. And so how can we do this in a safe way to keep your loved ones safe and follow through on the boundary you've created? Um, that's hard. And then I often will collaborate with Ibbits, who has her own business, you know, helping people. And um, sometimes she has some uh, interventionists that she works with and will set that all up so that the families can hire her and an intervention team to get the loved one into treatment. That's usually with, you know, the people over 18, the people under 18, it's a lot easier. Yeah. What, what do you, how do you explain interventions to family members? Cause those in it of themselves necessary, absolutely to save someone's life, but can also be traumatic. And, and we also have this like, like Hollywood idea of what an intervention is like, where they come in at three in the morning and grab the person, which by the way, some interventionists do. How do you explain what an intervention would look like? And maybe it is that. Maybe it needs to be coming in at three in the morning while the, the person's in bed. Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> very carefully, very gently, very slowly. And we talk about, you know, this seems drastic. And there are lots of other things we can try before that. This is really a last-ditch effort. And it may be a situation where a, a person under 18 is violent towards the, the parents, and the parents cannot transport them to the treatment facility. In that case, you know, somebody else is needed. And to know that, yeah, it is going to cause trauma for you and your child to do that. And that's going to have to be added to the list of traumas to undo later. And this is in service of saving their life. It's just heartbreaking to go through that with a family. Um, and I have, and it's, it's worked and yeah, they're undoing the trauma from it. Um, with the people over 18, it's, um, it really is a last ditch life-saving effort. And I explain that that's not really what I do. Ibbets and her people do that and other interventionists do that. And that it's going to be a matter of this team working with you as the family to create a plan, to get the language and to do it as lovingly and gently and firmly as possible to help give your loved one the opportunity to make the choice to choose treatment and life over dying from their, from their eating disorder. Does that make sense? hundred percent. And, you know, I love that you say that's not my realm. That's what Ibbits does or whatnot, because we all have to work with our strengths and also understand that there are other people that have strengths in areas that we need help in. And so you can't do it all. You can't be parent, interventionist, um, you know, like it's just impossible. That's such a great point, Karen. Thank you. Because I really am conscious of staying in my lane. And a lot of people will ask me, well, 
you know, if you're not a therapist, what, you know, how, what's the difference between coaching and therapy? And I'm, I love that question because I'm super clear on the difference between therapy and coaching because it's important. I don't tell people what to do. I don't do therapy. And I have a wonderful list of amazing therapists and clinicians, dietitians, psychiatrists, doctors throughout the country, throughout the world that I refer to all the time and have them do the therapy piece. I'm a big proponent of family therapy. And my my ideal for families when they're working with me is that they're also working with a family therapist. That's such a huge component. And I'm pushing for it all the time. I'm like, come on, you need to do this work together in family therapy. Yes, you're doing your parallel process here with me. Your loved one's doing their process in their individual treatment and with their dietitian. But you also have to do the family therapy because they're coming back to live with you. So I really stay in my lane with that and am super conscious of that with families. And when they ask me things that go into the therapy realm, I'll just say it. You know, that's really a thing for you and your therapist or you and your loved one's family therapist to work together on. That's not what we're going to do here. It is important. There are times when I'll give my, my, my opinion or my feedback, like, you know, say it's with medication or whatnot, and I'll say, to be clear, I am not the doctor. I am not the psychiatrist. I, this is what I think. I think possibly we need to increase the dose or this might not be the best medication choice for you. But to be clear, do not take this as gospel. This is information for you to take to the psychiatrist. So it is really important that we, to some degree, stay in our lanes because it can be harmful because we're also working with people that are very vulnerable and very frightened. And they are looking to you as an authority figure and they are going to take what you say to gospel. And I think it's really honest to own and say, this is not my domain. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't do interventions. I really don't. And, but I have names of fabulous people who do. And I say, call them, have that conversation with them because I really can't. So even when you asked me the question, what do you tell families about it? What I explain to you is the most I really say, because I am not qualified to talk about interventions. I'm not an interventionist, but I know some fabulous people who are. Yeah. I, I want to ask another question. And then I am so painfully aware that we're going to have to start winding this down. But I'm I'm thinking about the whole process that you do. So you you start with the families at the beginning where they're like, they're scared, they need help, they don't know what to how to turn. How long do you follow them? Do you follow them through, like say if their if their child or their spouse or whatever, like to to help them get to a treatment center, to help them through treatment, help them when they come home. I I know this might be an odd question, but like, where does your journey end with them? Yeah, I love that question. And and you're reminding me that I forgot to tell you a piece of what I do. I started this past year training other people, clinicians and parent peer support people, how to do what I do, because I want this to continue once I'm too tired to be doing it anymore. <laughs> I wasn't sure where you were going with that, Becky. I'm like, oh, this just took a dark turn. <laughs> dark turn. Well, and you know, the, the thing is, is, I'm a realist and none of us as human beings live forever. Just sorry if that's a news flash to anybody, but guess what? None of us are getting out of this alive. Um, <laughs> so I'm not going to be here on this planet forever. And I want this work to continue after I'm not here. And so I'm training others to do this work. And Ideally, it would start in the beginning when a person is first 
um, either diagnosed or the family members suspecting that their loved one is sick or love in a perfect world for that to be the case that they start with the coach then and go through the whole process. And that's not always feasible. It's not a perfect world. Not everybody has the financial resources to do it. I do have some really low cost and free services and the one-on-one coaching isn't cheap. And for right now, insurance and treatment centers aren't paying for that piece. It might change someday, you know, a person can dream and uh, family members just simply can't afford it. So it varies. To answer your question, how long I work with people varies dramatically. It can be from one month of weekly sessions to years. I have families I've worked with for three to five years. And Karen, the fun thing that surprised me, you know, was that I knew I would help the family members heal and be well. What I didn't anticipate when I started this that just blew my mind when I started seeing it happen was when the family members work with me for a year or longer, their loved ones all have recovered. It's like, what? I didn't see that one coming. And it just blew my mind. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this is incredible. And so, and, you know, there may be, you know, recovery is different description for everyone, you know, and it may be that your loved one is in a psychiatric hospital and is being told that they have to be there their entire lives and that together we can get them out of there and into treatment and then back home living with you. And maybe they still have some body image or depression or some anxiety, but they're functional. They're living life. And that's amazing. And, and some are symptom-free completely and off doing their lives. And it just is, blows my mind. So depending on what people are able to do, it can vary really from, like I said, a month to years. And it is really hard to, for those who are new to this, I, when I say the word years, I just cringe because I've had people who are new to this, young moms, they come to me and, and they'll hear me talk about that this can take years. And, and they're just like, I just slapped him in the face. I feel horrible saying it. I mean, it just breaks my heart and that it can take a while, but the sooner it's caught, the more treatable it is, right? Well, I was just going to say, it's it's a reality that's necessary so they can be prepared and realize that, what is the expression that's so common? This is a marathon, not a sprint. They they need to know. Otherwise, they're going to burn out because they're they're not going to understand this could take years. This could take years. And the other thing I was going to say is this completely comes full circle to how we started this episode where you were saying that you and Kitty Weston were met by professionals saying, back off, you've done enough. And as we end this podcast, you're saying getting the family system, the support they deserve and need and on board is actually an enormous part of the healing for the person who's struggling and the family members. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, Adele LaFrance, you know, has done so much research as have others, Janet Treasure. We're seeing the research showing up when the family caregivers are supported, treatment outcomes are improving. I mean, it's just not that complicated. It's like, we just got to get on board. But, you know, I won't even go into our messed up American healthcare system and insurance, but that's a big piece of it. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It is. Becky, I want to thank you so much for coming on. I I have such respect for what you do. I know it's because of my own experience, having had an eating disorder and watching my family 
like deer in headlights. And I just, I just want to thank you for the work that you do. Thank you, Karen. It means a lot. It really means a lot to me. I just so appreciate it. And thank you and all the professionals for doing the work you do. I mean, it gives me so much hope and, and uh, it's so needed, so needed. And especially right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we are a community that's hopefully coming together and helping people the best that we can. I mean, I, I feel just from doing this podcast, my repertoire of people, support people that I can utilize has just been growing and growing. And so it's, it's, it's necessary. It really is. Before we end, I do have one last question that has nothing to do with the eating disorder world, but is there anything that I didn't ask you or anything that you want to say before we wind down? Mm. You know, if anybody listening is not clear about this yet, please know that any human who can still breathe can develop an eating disorder. So let go of any notions that you might have about what their body may look like from their skin color to their gender to their age, any of that. Let those notions go out the window and know if that human body is still breathing, they can develop an eating disorder. Well said. Unfortunately, well said. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Karen. Um, that does a lot of harm when we, when we don't understand that basic piece. Yeah, it does. It does. All right, Becky, as I said, I have one last question for you. And that is, Becky, if someone were to write about you on a bathroom stall, what would it say? Oh my goodness. Um, how much space is there on the bathroom wall? It's a big, it's, it's, it's a stall. So they could, you can write all over it. <laughs> it's a stall that has yet to be touched by any other graffiti. So it's, it's all yours. Oh my goodness. Okay. She seized the day. She grabbed the reins of life and went for a wild ride. Um, she enjoyed every moment to its fullest and took the hard stuff and turned it into sparkling light. That's a great, great way of putting it. Again, Becky, I want to thank you for being a part of the show. It has been wonderful having you on. All right, everyone. Well, that does it for another week of Recovery Bites Real Talk with recovered professionals. I look forward to talking with each and every one of you next week. Okay, take care and stay safe. To wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www dot karen lewis edc.com forward slash podcast you can subscribe to future shows by searching recovery bites on apple podcast spotify and google podcast all right everybody be well and thanks for listening to my bite for the week <laughs>